Romans chapter 9. We are going to belabor this verse one more time, 9.13, and then afterwards we will pick up the pace just a little bit in Romans to begin to move forward to complete the book as we go through it verse by verse, looking at verse 13. It says this, she was told the other older will serve the younger, verse 12, and as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Dr. D.A. Carson said the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. In 2007, a pastor by the name of Rob Bell began a tour called The Gods Aren't Angry. Pastor Bill Carlisle, who attended the lecture, states the following. He says, in the lecture, Bell begins with the story of a cavewoman who notices connections between celestial bodies, weather, and those things linked with her well-being, in other words, edible plants. He tells of a cave husband who likewise noticed these, these connections while hunting. And these hypothetical people somehow end up thinking that they must somehow appease a celestial being in order to be prosperous. Therefore, Bell stated that the God of Abraham emerged out of the Sumerian culture that was given at the time. His synopsis was that Levitical sacrificial laws were supposed to make God happy. They were supposed to make God happy and not to appease for sin. In other words, we would get blessings from God just like pagan sacrifices. And when you move towards the topic of Jesus, Jesus came to get rid of the violence of the sacrificial system once for all by showing that God wasn't angry anymore and that people didn't have to make sacrifices anymore. He was showing them a new way to do things and Jesus didn't resist violently because that wouldn't be anything different from the old system of violence against animals. So his conclusion in this seminar was this, that sacrifices were to take away the feelings of guilt or primal anxieties, as he called them. It wasn't necessarily for sin because God is love. And therefore, the whole theme of the seminar was God is love, God provides, God doesn't demand. But there was a billboard in Conroe as you were coming back in on 45 that repeated five times out on the highway, sponsored by this church. God is not angry with you. 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 God loves you. And then had the church name. Felt my temperature going up very, very, very strongly at that point in time. Praise God, they changed it here recently. 
Because what we need to understand and we need to look at this morning, what does it mean, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated? What does that mean? So we're going to look at the difficult doctrine of the love of God. And some people will say, why is it so difficult? Well, it's difficult. When you look at it from the perspective of coming from the scriptures. So we need to understand there's types of love. There's an intra-Trinitarian love of God. If we look at that, what does that mean? Well, basically we know we worship a God who's Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This God and the Father, they have a mutual and the Holy Spirit, mutual love for one another. There's that intra-Trinitarian. In other words, Jesus says, my Father loves me, I love the Father. So there is that love that has been from eternity with those three. In fact, that's where we get the doctrine of aseity. That's a big word. You can write that down, aseity, which basically means that God is self-sufficient. He did not have to create. He had everything he needed. He had the love and the praise and whatever he needed among himself, among the Trinity, among themselves, but out of love he did. So we understand there's intra-Trinitarian love of God. But then there's God's providential love, and we need to understand this. God's providential love over all that he made. You can put it this way. This is his general love that he gives to us. So what does that cover? Jesus mentioned it. Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6. Basically saying it rains on the just and the unjust. He makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. So what this means is there is a non-saving love that God has for everyone. Even his enemies, even his enemies will experience the goodness of God. Now, I want you to think about this. Those who would say that there is no God, those who would say we worship different gods, they still eat every day. They still drink every day every day they still have shelter they get to experience all kinds of good things they get married they have kids they have jobs and folks here's wonderful thing about this general love of God they even go to church and hear the word of the gospel hopefully or they hear truth from this, they basically enjoy life. Why? Because all things come from God. And since all things come from God, they basically has this benevolent love that is for everyone in all of creation. Even his enemies will enjoy those fruits from the general love of God. We need to understand that. He's made everything. We were sitting at the table with my grandson on uh, the other night, and we were thinking, my son was going through with his son, going through the catechism and saying, we're going to read about this, whatever. And he says, God makes all things. And my four-year-old goes, no, he doesn't. And we looked at him and said, what? He goes, he didn't build this house. Construction workers built this house. And so we had the opportunity to say, okay, 
That is true, but let's talk about where wood comes, comes from. Let's talk about where concrete comes from. Let's talk about all these things. And as we begin to start seeing these kind of things, we're saying this is what God created in the beginning, and he allowed us the knowledge to be able to, to do these things and to create these things and to build these things coming from what he created. So in that sense, God made this, created everything, and even God's enemies get to enjoy those kind of things that God has made. So there is this general love of God that we need to understand. But there's also a salvific uh, love that God has towards the world. And this is what it is. God says this. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent. This is what he's doing. He's calling people to repentance. When Jesus came, what did Jesus do? His first words of his first sermon, he comes and says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so there's this salvific love that goes out for the whole world, for everyone. That's what we are to do is to share the love of God in Jesus Christ with everyone. But not only is that, we need to understand there is a particular love that God has towards his elect. A specific love of God. You have the general and you have the specific. This is the love of the father that he has towards his children. He showers them not only with blessings, but he keeps them in covenantal love. He keeps them with faithfulness. He meets their every need according to uh, Christ Jesus, the riches in Christ Jesus. He answers their prayers. He gives them good gifts. As James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heaven. His goodness and his kindness that he's given to us towards, uh, is in, in fact making us like Christ. We need to understand that. We need to understand that everything that moves towards us, he's moving in goodness for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. And therefore, we're becoming like Christ. He's doing that in love. It's a specific love. But his discipline is also in love because he wants us to be pure vessels. He sets his love specifically on us. And I've shared this with you before, but those of you who are new, let me share this with you again. I can come to this congregation and I can look out over all these folks and I can say to you, man, I love your children. I love them, love them, love them, love them. I love your children. And so therefore I can say in this way, say Alex comes up to me and he's telling me about all the big fish he caught and all the the stuff that's happening and I grab Alex and I hug him and say son you're you're a young man after my own heart I love fishing and I love you and so there's I'm loving Alex generally but Jason his daddy overhears the conversation and Jason's daddy says since you love him so much would you pay for his college Right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's asking me right, right now, please do, okay? But I have to say to him, you know what? I have a general love for your son, but I do not have a specific love for him in that regard. That is reserved for my own children. I will pay their college. I will pay their way. I will provide everything that they need specifically 
But generally, I still love your son. I still love him. I'm not going to pay for his college. Put that down. Do we need to have a special business meeting? And we'll do that if we need to. <laughs> to say, Pastor is not paying for the Tanner's boys' college. Okay? But understand, there's a general, there is a specific. Now, God's conditional love is here also that we need to understand. You see why we need to understand these doctrines about the difficulty of this thing because there's different kinds that are mentioned in Scripture. There is a conditional love that's directed to his chosen in a conditional way, and it's on obedience. It's on obedience. It deals not how we come to Christ, but how our relationship has been established. In fact, Jude tells us, remain in God's love. We have Jesus saying in John 15, remain in my love. So we are to remain in that love out of obedience. But now we get to this passage of scripture. It says, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. How do we understand this verse in light of all the different loves of God? Well, there are, there are some folks and good, gracious, holy men of God who believe that this means that God loves Jacob less. That God loves Jacob less. How do they get that? Well, John 14, 26, we find Jesus saying that we must hate the members of our own families if we want to follow him. Listen to what it says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, in Matthew ten thirty seven, it says, whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me what does he mean in that context in that word that he's using there it actually means that you must love them less than you love me so therefore these godly men and scholars will say it's the same thing in Romans chapter 9 Jacob have I loved, Esau have I loved less. But I don't think that is what he is teaching. Dr. R.C. Sproul says this, this is a soft explanation of what it means about loving less, but it doesn't work in Romans chapter 9. God did not love Esau less than Jacob. He did not love Esau in any saving way at all. And so we must understand this about God, and we need to understand that when he says, Esau, I have hated, what does he mean by those words? Okay, Dr. Sproul goes on to say, it means that he has chosen to favor them. God's hating someone means he has chosen not to favor them. Now, I want you to understand something. This is where he and I may have differences. Now, I'm not saying that I'm smarter than Dr. Sproul. Goodness gracious, this man forgot more than I ever knew. 
But I do believe that it's something different where he's talking about the attribute of God here that it is meaning that God hates Esau. Now, here's what I mean. Psalm 139 gives us a clue. It says, oh, David is praying this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, this is pretty harsh words, right, from David? I hate them. I hate my enemies. But wait a minute. Jesus says, love your enemies. That is true. David doesn't look like he's loving his enemies very well. But what kind of love does God bestow upon his enemies? Well, he bestows upon them a benevolent love. So what are we to do? What's David talking about? He is hating those who really hate God. What does he mean? Does it mean that he's just got this angry countenance over himself all the time? I don't think so. I do think this, that even as he was the king, he was still benevolent, still benevolent to some enemies. But he was making a statement of saying, man, they do not they do not love you. I do not love them in the way that I would call them my brothers, that I would call them somebody that I can rejoice in and I can be a part of. So when Jesus says we are to love our enemies, he's basically saying we are to respond to them in benevolence. We are to love our neighbors. We are to respond to them with that same kind of love that God has for all of creation, and that is a benevolent love for their needs. In fact, when you talk about love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't have anything to do with your self-esteem. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Man has turned that into this self-esteem God that they worship and says, I can't love my neighbor unless I first love myself. I've got to love myself before I can love my neighbor. That, they have a Greek word for that. Y'all know what it is? Here's the point. This is what it is. It's a benevolent love. When you see the need of your neighbor, you love them by providing for their needs. Does that have anything to do with your self-esteem? You provide for them and providing for them and showing the love of Christ to them and giving them a benevolent love that, they ha- that you have for them, showing that shines your light into their lives. And in fact, in Romans chapter two, He's talking about how the goodness and the kindness of God have led us to repentance. So when people see goodness, in fact, Romans will get into chapter 12, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, that when we do good things to our enemies, we love them benevolently. It says he heaps coals upon their head. In other words, it heaps conviction. They see that you're responding out of Jesus' love for them, God's love for them in a benevolent kind of way. Hopefully that they will see that. They begin to ask questions. They begin to see what's uh, flowing out of you. And then you are able to tell them about the wonderful sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf for their sins. It's a benevolent love, but it's nothing that is, as Spurgeon says, 
Complacency. What does that mean? Well, if you define complacency, it basically means it's a feeling of smug, uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievement. And so to become a complacent person means that a person is very pleased with themselves or feels they do not need to do anything about a situation, even though the situation may be uncertain or dangerous. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me translate it for you. In other words, you can say, I see the wickedness and the evil and everything else around me. Doesn't bother me. No big deal. I'm taken care of. Don't worry about it. In fact, I can be among it and not worry about a thing. There's where we have to be very, very careful. I can be among it. I can watch it. I can participate in it. I'm okay because I've got my ticket to heaven. Friends, no, no, no. Wickedness and evil and sinfulness should disturb us. It should disturb us. Yet, we should be benevolent, however, but not complacent. We're benevolent to those who are enemies. That's why I say it. It displays the general love of God. So when we're thinking of this, we need to understand, but pastor, how is it that God says that he hates somebody? I want you to understand about what the scripture talks about God's hate because it's there in the scriptures. It's not just here, it's in the scriptures. Now, here's what it says. There's many things in the scriptures that says God hates. We have to understand that about his character and his attributes. Deuteronomy 12:31 says that he hates false worship. He hates it. That's not I love less. I hate it, it says. Deuteronomy 16:22 says God hates idolatry. Anything that sets itself up as God and that we worship as God, he hates, he loathes, he abhors. Proverbs 6:16, 6, listen to what it says. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. You see those seven things? Those things that says God hates. He doesn't love less. He hates them. Isaiah 1 says, I hate your new moon festivals and hypocrisy. So we have to understand this. Does God hate the sinner? Does God hate the sinner? There are two possibilities. That God loves them less or that hate means hate. So I want you to think with me on these things. What is it that he hates? He hates everything that goes against his holy nature hates iniquities but he loves righteousness and here's the thing folks I want you to understand when you hear the term God hates the sin but loves the sinner sin and sinner cannot be separated cannot be separated God does not send sin to hell who goes to hell sinners go to hell 
Hebrews, if you read through Hebrews and you read through, uh, from chapter 3 on, you'll come to a verse, especially in chapter 10. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Anger at what? Sin and those who rebel against him. Fearful, fearful, fearful thing. Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon that sparked a revival in 1734 called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he preached about what it meant to fall into that kind of relationship with the Lord. It's been noted that someone has written the day in our culture, it should be this, God in the hands of angry sinners because we are in a society that literally hates God and is trying to wipe him out in every part of our culture but God clearly states that God hates the sinner now I want you to look at something just real quickly Psalm chapter 2 as we're looking at this Psalm chapter 2 this is, one, this is a, an amazing, amazing psalm. I think about this every time I read international news, read our news, read things about people trying to exert their power, read about stuff that says we're killing planets and all kinds of stuff. This is what he says. Why do, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What do they say? They're saying that the global response, this global uprising at the time of this writing was basically saying we will not have any God over us. Get him away. We don't want his rule. That's what it is saying. There was this global uprising, not global warming, but global rise of rebellion. This is what God is saying. This is what's happening. What, if you look at the fourth verse, he says, he who sits in the heavens, what's he doing? He's laughing. Ha. Ha. <laughs> He's laughing. He is sitting there and saying, he holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, in his anger, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion on my holy hill. He says, I've got this under control here. You can go ahead and do what you want to do. But I am God, and this is what it is. And you get down to the, to the 10th verse. He says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Pay homage to him is what it means in the Hebrew. Worship him lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You've seen those movies where the king is sitting up on his throne and someone comes in, the conquering heroes come in, they bring the prisoners and the king steps down and puts his ring out and he asks his enemies to do what? Kiss the ring balance objection balance submission this is what the psalmist is saying 
guys bow in submission to this holy God who does hate iniquity and those who do iniquity it's just part of what he says in the scripture Psalm 5 you can go through Psalm 5 you can go through all kinds of Psalms and you will see he says I hate all workers uh, of iniquity as we go on we see that God's anger his wrath will rest on the unbelieving sinner now why does he say Jacob I loved Esau I have hated because Esau comes from who Adam the lineage of Adam we all have fallen into sin we are rebellious by nature we are children of wrath as it says in Ephesians and even John 3.36 says whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him when we talk about Esau it's the wrath of God remaining on him we know and understand that that was a prophecy from Malachi. We talked about that last week. It's basically that because of their wickedness and because of their evil, this is what God says. He hates that. And we get a clue from Romans 9, and we'll get into this next week. For God doing that, is there injustice? Look at verse 14. He says, by no means. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Right? He goes on and he starts talking about this is what God has done. It says, God desiring to show his wrath down in verse 22 to make known his power endured much with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction why were they vessels of wrath because they are all sinners fallen fallen and therefore sin must be punished but what does this do when we look at this and we understand that sin and sinners God sends sinners to hell we need to understand this that that kind of negates this little saying of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life well, he does generally love people. We understand that. But how in the world can God love you now and yet if you reject Jesus Christ, send you to hell to where his, you're going to experience his wrath for eternity? doesn't seem that there's much consistency, consistency there. God loves you, but you reject him. But therefore, then now you're going to get his wrath. Doesn't make a lot of sense in that regard so we have to be careful in that situation God understand that God says he had hated Esau before Esau was born why again God's hatred of sin was there and it's that which we inherited from Adam Psalm 5 says arrogant cannot stand in your presence you hate all who do wrong so it's not some abstract sin it's not just some wickedness. It's people. So I want you to understand this. Why do we need to understand this verse? Why do we tarry here? Why do we preach whole sermons on this kind of thing? We need to understand that God loves righteousness. He hates wickedness and sinfulness. And when we begin to see what God is saying this holy hatred towards sin and wickedness 
then we can relish in the mercy that we have received from God self because we see we were there now understand this understand this even though you may have been elected from the foundation of the world you were still under the wrath of God until God opened your heart to you for you to believe you were still children of wrath you were still there that's why we should sit back and say oh my goodness why why did he have mercy on me well we're going to learn because he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills we're going to learn that next week but we need to understand that we see the mercy that God has done it says while we were still sinners Christ died for us we should relish in that mercy and we should share that mercy with everyone that we see we don't, as we reiterate over and over again, we never, never, never know whom God has elected. What do we do? We preach it to everyone, call everyone to repentance, to experience the mercy of God, to experience His mercy, to experience His grace so that they may repent, they may see themselves in the light of God's attitude towards sin, so that they can turn in repentance and trust Christ in what he did for them on the cross. That's why we share. That's why we pray. That's why we preach, so that men can become children of God. So folks, understand, we cannot exclude God's wrath and just say that he's God's, God is love. God is love. God is love. We can't go around doing that all the time. God is love. But a necessary part of the attributes of God is that he also is a God of wrath who will punish sin. He would not be a good judge if he didn't. You wouldn't ever want to stand in a courtroom, dear friends, knowing that your child has been murdered by someone and that murderer is on trial and that judge say, well, you know, it's only your first time to murder. I'm going to let you off you would not think as the parent of that child that that was a good judge we have this going on in our society today judges district attorneys and everything else letting criminals go and proclaiming they're doing it out of goodness no they're not good judges they're not good district attorneys they're not good period what we have is a good and just God who says I love but I must punish he would not be good otherwise so folks if you are here and you do not know this God through Jesus Christ understand you are still under the wrath of God and you will be judged you need Christ so I pray that you would repent see your sin as God sees it and come to know him through Jesus Christ let me pray for you Father thank you Lord even though this is difficult and it's hard yet we know Lord that you have provided a way that we can have relationship with you through our Lord Jesus Christ who appeases your wrath thank you for the mercy 
God, you are rich in mercy that you have given to us eternal life so that we now are out from under that judgment and we have life. I pray for that one that may be here that does not. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would open their hearts so that they may believe and understand it would be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, Father, I pray that you would save them. And, Lord, we pray for those in our country. We pray once again that you would send revival like you did in days before. We pray that you would move people to repentance at the, at the kindness that you've exhibited to them, being slow in patience. Lord, call them to repentance. And, Lord, let our nation come to you. And so, Lord, I just pray these things and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.